standing for the reading of his word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the reading of his word. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to head back. They're going with you, G, with GT back there. Okay, man, y'all are in for a treat today. Let me invite the rest of you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open it up to First uh, Peter, which uh, Ms. Kirsten just read. And we get to start a new book today, so I'm excited about that. And... Uh, if you're kind of new with us, what we try to do as a church is we try to preach through about a book or two a year of Scripture, and we just kind of go line by line, section by section. And we sometimes pause, as we just did, and we spent uh, eight or nine weeks on prayer, and we focus in on a certain topic, but we love just to walk through the Word of God. And the reason I love to walk through the Word of God is because it, um, it forces us to talk about things we don't want to talk about, and it forces us to listen um, to God's perspective on things, it wouldn't be the first thing that we would bring up. And so we're going to walk through First uh, Peter today. And I love First Peter. First uh, Peter is really this like uh, family letter to several churches that are dispersed. And you'll, you'll feel this kind of familial heart of Peter as we walk through it. And um, even so, is why Jason mentioned that we seek to be a spiritual family. Uh, just uh, as you have a nuclear family and there's certain things that happen, there's a trust, hopefully, that's there in that family, that we're a spiritual family. And uh, we get together and uh, we worship weekly as a spiritual family. Uh, we're in little missional communities or small groups. And it's kind of a tighter-knit spiritual family. And even Jason mentioned that next week we're getting together for team night. Uh, we're going to try to do a tailgate outside out there. I think it's going to be great. We do encourage you to come. Sometimes in, um, sometimes you need those kind of events to just kind of rub elbows with different parts of the family you don't only really serve with or in an MC with. Peter starts out by introducing, uh, introducing himself. And when we start a new book, and we're going to take for 13 or 14 weeks on this one, it's great to start with some context. Because who is writing makes a difference to what they're saying. And you understand this. If you get a text from your wife or your husband, uh, you better read it. It's probably important. They've got something to say to you. But if you get a text for someone who's trying to extend your home warranty, you might not read it, right? It's, it, it, matters, it matters who's calling. It matters who's writing. And this is what Peter's doing. Is he writes 
at the very beginning, he introduced himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that uh, this is not how we speak today, we write a letter and put our names at the very end of it. Peter puts his name at the first, Paul does the same, several of the scripture authors, because they were writing this on a scroll. And in order, if you wrote your name at the end, they'd have to unroll the entire scroll and look at the very bottom to who wrote it. So they introduce themselves right at the top, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's such a great character, and we've talked about him before. I love Peter. A.W. Tozer says of Peter that he is a bundle of contradictions, and I love that. Peter was the first to confess Jesus and the first to deny him. He was the first appointed leader. He's also the one that gets into most trouble. Peter certainly heard from God when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter responds correctly. You're the son of, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then three sentences later, Jesus calls him Satan, calls him the devil. It's this, he's a bundle of contradictions. And he's so relatable to me because he says stupid things. And I say stupid things all the time. He has these moments of brilliance. But what I find most refreshing about Peter, is he's just not real stuffy or religious. He's not very buttoned up. You know, compared to Paul, the apostle Paul, Paul is so intellectual. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had the entire Old Testament memorized. Can you even imagine the whole thing? And to be a teacher, to be a Pharisee, not only did you have to have the whole thing memorized, you had to be able to say it backwards. So that, that's how well that he had to, to know it. That's Paul. Peter's not like this. You know, Peter was the fisherman. Peter's a little bit, you know, unbuttoned. When I think about Paul, I think, you know, Paul's going to spend the weekend translating the text into some kind of Syriac translation. And Peter's the kind of guy who's going to spend the weekend watching Tiger King or something like that. That's what I kind of get, you know, maybe twice. Paul's the kind of guy who ironed his polos. The text doesn't say this, but this is my, the vibe I get. Peter's the kind of guy who wore Crocs to a wedding, you know. Not appropriate, by the way. Don't do that, please. Um, even the fancy Crocs, they don't belong at a wedding. Peter, if he got a stand on his robe, he just flipped that thing around, man. He's, that's just who he was. He's just so down to earth. And you can find this book that way. It's just gritty. It's earthy. So practical. And he's writing with a bit of, um, he deals with suffering a lot. Because the context that he's writing in, these people are really suffering. He writes this book in 62 AD, this little letter. Just a few years after writing this, he would be crucified upside down in Rome. Paul had just died of also uh, getting his head chopped off with an axe, most theologians think. And so on the heels of that, the leaders of the church being martyred, and these people being pushed out of their hometown, Peter writes this letter. So who's the audience? The text tells us that. The audience, it says there in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So these are, these are provinces that would be Roman provinces, but several hundred miles from Rome. Today it's modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And he lists them likely in the route that the courier would have 
traveled taking his very letters to them. These people were scattered. It's a group of believers that had been scattered all over the world through political and religious persecution. And it's hard for us to identify because we've not experienced this. But in studying this, I learned that 1 Peter is the favorite verse for most Christians that aren't in the West. Because they understand what it means to be persecuted for their faith. They understand what it means to be an exile. They understand what it means to be pushed out of their uh, hometown because of what they, what they believed. Everything in their lives were, was uncertain. Their communities and ways of life had been shattered. Their worlds had been totally rocked. And although maybe hard for us to understand some of this, maybe our friends in Southeast Asia would really get it. As many of them come to faith and they get pushed out of their little villages. They get ostracized from the other dominant religions in the area. The theme that runs through this book that we're calling the series is home away from home. Home away from home. I remember when uh, Ashley and I were in college and we're dating and then even newly married. But certainly when we were dating and in college, you know, maybe you remember this college life. You just... You just craved a home-cooked meal, especially if you went away and you lived in a dorm somewhere. And no one would even have to get the invitation really fully out before you would say yes. If they invited you to come to their house and eat home-cooked dinner, that for us was Jerry and Sue Riles. That's uh, Ross Githens. I know many of you know him. He helps lead worship sometimes. That's his uh, in-laws, Jennifer's parents. And they live right down the road from uh, the apartment that I lived in. And so we would just all the time... Upon invitation or no invitation, we would crash at their house. And it was a bit of a a home away from home. And this is what Peter is getting at here in verse 3. He uses these words. According to the knowledge, verse 2, of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We see these three descriptive words about these, this, this little church these churches, that they're elect exiles who are scattered. Elect means that they're God's chosen people. They've been adopted into God's family, that God's got a plan for them. As Ephesians would say, they are his masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. They're elect. They're exiles. Maybe you're passage uh, translates it as strangers or sojourners even. Peter's going to come to these words a lot in many of the chapters. Elect speaks that we belong to God. He's our true home now. But exile speaks to our current relationship with the world that we live in. This is why it's a home away. That this world is not our home forever. As a matter of fact, in as it was true of these believers in the early church, it is true of us today that we're elect exiles scattered. 
Peter's writing to a group of people who have been exiled from their country. He's using this metaphor for all Christians everywhere. All Christians are essentially exiles in the world, temporarily isolated from their true country, their true citizenship, and taking up residence in another. When you're living in a country that you're not from, you can be one of three things in relationship to it. You can be an immigrant. An immigrant is someone who seeks to make this new country their permanent home. They want to leave because of some reason. Maybe there's better chances in another country. Maybe it's some kind of uh, war that's going on or uh, political things. And so they, they leave and they seek citizenship in a new country. They're not from there, but they want this new country to be their home. So they seek citizenship to be a citizen of this country. If you an immigrant here, you have to take a citizenship test that most of us can't pass. I mean, it's really difficult. They want you to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. And people who come here and they see Lady Liberty right in the harbor of New York, that this is their process to, as an immigrant to seek citizenships in a, in a new country. And that's what a lot of Christians do with this world. They might know intellectually that they're citizens of heaven, but they try to treat this world as if this is where they really want to live and invest. And because of that, they leverage most of their relationships and resources to make life as comfortable as it can be. They obsess over their reputation and what other people think of them here. They stress about what they do and what they don't have. Am I ever going to get married? Is my ship ever going to come? Why is life so difficult? There's so much of my life that I still want to experience that I've never experienced. They're an immigrant. That's a relationship you can have. The, another option is a tourist. A tourist really is the opposite of an immigrant. They, they don't want to live in the new country. They're just visiting. Ashley and I have a dream to go to Italy one day and to eat all the, the amazing pasta. I want to gain 100 pounds in Italy and eat everything that I, that I right? See, you see these... We, I don't want to move there. I don't really want to learn the language. I just want to go and take from that country. I want to go be a tourist. But the other option here is an exile. This is what Peter's talking about here. An exile is someone whose home is somewhere else, but for an undefined amount of time, they have to make their home in a new place. So they invest in this new community, they form relationships, they learn the culture and the language, but they don't want to get too attached. All the while, they're looking for the day that they can go back to their home. They're satisfied with just enough to get by because their real treasure is somewhere else. Their actual home is somewhere else. They're just, they're just here because they have to be for now. A temporary stop en route to their real home. And this is the language, the metaphor that Paul, uh, Peter is using here. Peter wants to change our mentality toward the wor world around us. That the world is not our true home, so don't be obsessed with our experiences here or what we have or what we don't have. And don't let it bother us that everyone around us is a little bit different. That's what you should expect when you're in exile. You belong to a different kingdom with a different set of values. You follow a different authority. Christians are supposed to seem strange to the world around them. I mean, how could you not? You're living with a whole different set of values. You answer to a different authority. And it's in this setting that Peter is actually providing them comfort. 
by saying, it's okay, this is not forever. In our little prayer time this morning, uh, Kobe read a psalm that talked about joy coming in the morning. And then Jason actually read it as, Jason wasn't in the prayer time, he was meeting with the deacons. Read that same passage, that joy comes in the morning. And in a sense, this is what Peter is trying to say, that, that dawn is coming. And that the difficulty and the tribulation and the things that are so heavy right now are not always going to be that way. The dawn is coming. Their current experience, Peter's reminding them, is not the truest part of their story. They, got a, they have a greater citizenship and a much different and a much better kingdom. Even these specific people, if they've been pushed out of Rome, most of them, most of them Gentile, pushed out of Rome, they couldn't stay in Rome because they would have been killed. But Caesar Nero was on a rampage. And so they'd been forced from their home and they had ended up in these countries in Asia Minor and they weren't welcome there either. Not because they're not Christian, just because they're, because they're Christian, but just because they're not from there. But they, they weren't welcome there either. They had different practices. And although the, most of these were Roman provinces, they had a much different culture, many of them a different language. And certainly they felt like no matter where they went, they weren't accepted. They didn't fit in. end of verse 2 says according to the foreknowledge of God the Father there's a lot of kind of Christian words sanctification which just means maturing of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood that's kind of a weird phrase just to throw in there especially if you're not used to reading uh, scriptures we don't we don't talk about that Claire went to someone's birthday party last night I didn't ask her when she got home if she'd been sprinkled with blood that sounds weird and cultish right but but here's what Peter's doing is Peter's reaching far back into the Old Testament history when God chose his people through Abraham and then delivered from Egypt through Moses that he makes a covenant with his people. And way back in Exodus 24, he makes a covenant with Israel, a new covenant with them that he's going to be their God. And he sprinkles, the, sprinkles them with blood to signify their faith familial nature in relation to each other that their primary identity would be as a member of God's family we're God's people and Paul's reach I mean Peter's reaching way back there and bringing that way uh, closer and even applying it to the Gentiles which would have had no real relationship or even understanding of what's happening in Exodus and he's telling them that they are now part of God's family and that their number one identity as a member of God's family would be to be a member of God's family it wouldn't be their race they're most of them are different race it wouldn't be their hometown they're from different hometowns it wouldn't be their language they speak different languages it wouldn't be their uh space in society they had the, from all, all all walks of life they spoke different languages they had different customs Paul says I mean Peter says all those things are important that's great but there's a new primary identity, and that's that you're part of God's family. And that's what this little, little letter is about, how to live as part of God's kingdom while you're still on earth. It's going to tell us how to deal with suffering. It speaks a lot about that, how to navigate difficulty. This is what we should do, what we shouldn't do. 
But the thing I want to latch on here in verse 3 is this phrase, living hope. I just love this phrase. I mention it every Easter. It just grabs my heart. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Or to have new life, your translation might say, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope or a hope that's alive. Peter uses hope much different than we use hope today. We say, hey, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. Or I hope I get a raise at work. Or hope my kids let me take a nap. Or hope my kids take a nap. But that's just like, you know, like, wishful thinking sometimes biblical hope is different biblical hope is a strong confidence of God's future this is why the author of Hebrews says that we hold unswervingly to our hope not wishful thinking it's declared promise of God and God has always kept his promises and although sometimes in our eyes he's slow to keep his promise he's slow to fulfill it Maybe even you've, God's promised you something, led you something, put a vision or a heart for something, burden your heart for something, and, 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 and you're waiting on it, and you're saying, God, when are you going to do this? We think he's slow, but he's not slow. His timing is perfect. And that's what these people are thinking. We left everything to follow Jesus, and now we're walking through literal hell on earth. We got kicked out of our home. We have no way to make money. We're not accepted anywhere. We're persecuted for sharing Christ. We're persecuted for believing in Christ. We just, we just don't fit anywhere. And Peter's like, listen, I know, man, things are hard. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're not hard. I'm just saying that you've got a greater hope than you're hard. What is this reason for such hope, we would ask? Really, First Peter, this chapter, the theme of this chapter is triumph. And it's something that we see over and over and over again in this first chapter. It's not a word we talk about much, triumph. It's not in our everyday language. But this was written at a time when Christianity looked like it was done. These people kicked out of Rome, strangers in the new land. Nero is literally putting Christians on telephone poles and covering them in tar and lighting them on fire so that they can light his garden parties. A hundred thousand or more Christians had probably been killed already in these two decades since Jesus was ruthlessly murdered on a cross. And so the, you can kind of see how they're like, man, this is kind of a drag. I really thought this would be like, you know, you, you know the abundant life thing. You told me about the abundant life thing. And now this. And Peter's going to say, listen, the Christian life is a life of triumph. Just because you've been kicked out of Rome, just because you're strangers in a new land, just because it's difficulty on every side, don't give up hope. We have a living hope. How do we know we have a living hope? Because Jesus actually raised from the dead. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior is what Peter is saying. You ever had one of those seasons where you just had bad news? You know, maybe a week where you got a flat on the way to work and then you got to work and you forgot your lunch. You have to work hungry and then you get a phone call that you're in trouble with the boss and then the school calls you and your kids got lice and then 
you get home and your washing machine is blown up all over the, the and you're just one of those days you ever had one of those or one of those seasons where it's just like bad news bad news bad this is what this is in, in essence this is where they are it's I have a friend that I was with on Thursday who had cancer come back again for the seventh time. Can you imagine beating cancer and it coming back? All the things you have to do and you lose your hair and the chemo treatments and the radiation and you've done all that and then it comes back for a second time. Can you imagine it coming back for a seventh time? I saw him on Thursday and I said, how you doing, man? He said, I'm still upright. I got a lot to be thankful for. Very honest answer. These people were discouraged and tired and weary and Peter's preaching about this living hope like he doesn't know the audience. And here's his reminder. Friend, trials are temporary. Triumph is forever. The trials are temporary. Triumph is forever. Let me give you four. He mentions many more. We're going to focus just on four. Four ways in this little text that we are triumphant. One, that we have new life. He says that there in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, he did the work, to be born again or to have new life. And then he connects this new life, this living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What God did for Jesus on Easter, he does for you and I in the very depth of our being. And notice he doesn't just say new direction. He uses the same term that Jesus had used with Nicodemus way back in John 3. That actually be born again, like there's this new transcendent, new chance at life, this new holistic this new creation is what the apostle paul uses in second corinthians 5 therefore if anyone's in in christ he says he's a he's a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come and here's the reason we know that we walk in this new life if you'd say look how do i know if i'm if i'm walking in this new life peter you, you may have even missed it he he uses three descriptors about this new life you have to go back to the end of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3, according to his great mercy. Now, you, you've heard those words before, grace and the word mercy and the word peace. It's a good chance you've got something hanging in your living room that's got one of those words on it, right? We love those words. They're perfect on coffee cups. But what is that really if you had to describe what grace was or what mercy was or what peace was? Imagine I got pulled over by the sheriff's department for going 100 through a school zone. I've not done that. My brother may have. Maybe not 100, but it was, it was, it was fast. But it's his birthday. It's not time to out him. Um, got pulled over going 100 in the school zone. And the officer comes up, and I mean, I'm clearly guilty, and I've been caught, and it's everything within his right to take my keys and my vehicle and even to take me to jail. But imagine that officer is feeling a little generous that day and 
he's going to extend mercy. Mercy is where I don't get the consequences that I deserve. That's, that's mercy. Well, imagine this is just, I mean, just one kind of a sheriff's officer. He's not only just feeling generous and great that day. Not only does he give not only does he give mercy that I didn't get what I did deserve to go to jail, but he says, you know, you know what? Man, this is your lucky day. I actually want to give you something that you didn't earn. You get a new car, right? And he's, you know, a new car pulls up right behind him. And I was like, man, what are the odds? I don't go to jail and I get a new car. That's grace. Grace is when, when we get what we didn't earn, what we, what we never could earn. And not only do we have, because of the mercy of God and because of the grace of God, this is his relationship by adopting us into his family, by choosing us to be a part of the family, his grace and his mercy, but we also have his peace. What peace is, is it literally means to be whole or uninjured or undivided. At the most basic, it just determines this general well-being. When things were kind of chaotic, someone stepped in and brought order. Someone restored what had been broken. It's, it's now peace. Isaiah said that Jesus would be the literal prince of peace. Hebrews says that it's our, the God of all peace. He brings order. And you see this in the life of Jesus. This is what he's always doing. He's, he's bringing order to chaos. The chaos that sin caused in the garden with disease and destruction. Even creation groans to be healed, to be peaceful again. We, we see this during springtime as it's the most beautiful weather and the most dangerous. You know, your phone starts, you know, it's just like, it's a beautiful day. I'm just out and then it's like tornadoes, go get in, go get in the basement right now. You're like, well, I, I don't see anything. And then a cow flies by you or something, you know, you're like, okay, it's, this, this, this is, the, even creation groans for peace. And Jesus steps in and he, what does he do? He heals diseases. He speaks to the storm and calms disaster. He raises the dead. He brings peace. This is how we know we have this new life because what used to define our lives was disorder and chaos. And now what increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly is now order. Well, we know that we are guilty in our sin, yet because of his great mercy that we have hope for heaven. That, and even more than that, that he... And his grace bestows upon us, gives, uh, gives to us, pours upon us so many blessings. We're triumphant because we have new life, Peter says. But secondly, because we have the promise of an eternal inheritance. God literally wrote us into the will. You know, if you've got a family that writes you into the will, your only job is not to make them upset. So they take you out of the will. But that's not the, that's not the kind of will that God has here. As a matter of fact, he wrote us into the will while we were still hostile and enemies of him. Isn't that amazing? This is the inheritance. Peter's going to talk about this a lot. We're not going to go exhaustively to this, but he just wants them to know that this inheritance they will have is imperishable. It doesn't lose value or ever ruin. They likely still had money that they had used back home, but they're now in this new land and their money, their valuables are worth nothing. This is not the currency of their new place. 
The things that they thought were precious are not precious here. Well, this inheritance is not is imperishable, that it's undefiled, meaning it's never going to spoil, that it's unfading. It keeps talking about it. That it's unfading. It, it not only does it, it just gets better and better and better, not worse. And, and maybe the best part about this is this inheritance, this eternal inheritance, is kept in heaven for you. It's being kept by God's power, it says in verse 5. Kept in heaven for you, reserved for you. Jesus would tell his disciples in John 14 that he's going to prepare a place for them, a a dwelling place for them. And you're thinking about that, and that would make a whole lot of sense. In essence, Jesus is this eternal architect who's drawing a dwelling place for you and I. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, when this old earth is done with and how we know it and it's made new in God's new intention, there's actually going to be a dwelling place for you that has been created and drawn up by Jesus himself. Isn't that pretty incredible? And there's nothing the enemy can do to threaten your inheritance. You you ever walk into a coffee shop and they know your order? It makes you feel pretty special. You walk in and he's like, oh, there's Luke, Americana, medium Americana with two pumps of sugar-free vanilla and a splash of half and half. That's Tessa's back there. she's She's the best one. She knows how to make that drink. It's great. But this is not everything. I mean, just like, oh, this is kind of cool. They know. It just means I spend too much money on coffee is what it means. Ashley and I took an anniversary trip to Dallas a couple years ago, and we stayed in the Omni. And, uh, you know, you fill out your little stuff, and it's our anniversary, our anniversary trip, so I told them that. I just put it in there. But I do this with all the things, and no one ever cares that it's your anniversary. And so we get to the Omni, and we check in. We get up to the room. And there is like chocolate cake and strawberries, and it says happy anniversary on the plate. I'm like, this is crazy, right? I feel like I have officially made it. And then, and then something happened, and our room was actually booked for the next night. And so we went to a different Omni, the one downtown Dallas, and we check in, we go to our room. Another cake, happy anniversary, written strawberries. And I was like, this is the life. Is this what heaven's like? Every time we go home, there's cheesecake and strawberries waiting on us. Think about the eternal inheritance that is prepared for you. Isn't that amazing? That for the child of God in this room, there's nothing you can do to mess it up. There's no bad days that Jesus takes the cheesecake away (laughs) or makes your house a little smaller. It's like, he doesn't need granite countertops. He doesn't doesn't need the gold, right? Because it's not based upon what you've accomplished. It's based on who he is. It's based on grace. Some of us are younger in the room, and the eternal inheritance doesn't mean a whole lot because our lives are pretty good. But I was at a funeral yesterday. 
when we talked about heaven for 30 minutes? And it meant a lot. The closer you get to the end of this life, the better news this is. New life, eternal inheritance, third thing. We have a strengthening faith. Man, this could be the whole sermon. I've got to speed up. We have a strengthening faith. Look at what he says here. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded. This is us, the family of God. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. He says various trials here in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. The letter of James also picks up on this very same theme. Of joy in the midst of various trials. Various trials means all sorts of difficulty that any of us may be walking in. If we were to take a survey today and I would just fill out to you and ask you, just be real honest with me. He says, no one's going to know this, but what's, what's heavy on your heart? What difficulty are you walking through? And just in this one room, I, I see your faces. I see your prayer requests. I know what some of you are walking through. And that's just the things that you wrote down. There might be such much deeper things of people who are struggling with physical health and even cancer, even in this room, and disease. People who are caring for their aging parents and caring for special needs kids and people who are walking through loss and people who are feeling betrayed, people who've lost friendships over the gospel just in this, just in this room. There's family dynamics that are really complicated and hard to understand so many of these things what this is what peter's talking about there's these various trials many of them were persecuted for doing the right thing that they were lonely in doing the right thing maybe you feel like this you've been persecuted for following the way of jesus or lonely when no one will stand with you maybe you felt the betrayal of family or friends maybe you're walking through the grief of loss various trials Some of them were certainly homeless, destitute. And this is the promise, and I love this promise. This is one of those things that I love so much. It's so hard sometimes to hear, but I love it. That God promises that he will take these trials, the the effects of sin, what the enemy uses to destroy you, what what sin brings about, even even sins that you did commit, and the consequences of those that that he will use these difficulties and make you stronger and lovelier and his name more precious. Isn't that amazing? What the enemy takes to destroy you, God does some kind of supernatural kung fu on it. And what's meant to destroy you doesn't destroy you. It's difficult. It's hard to walk through. I'm not saying it's easy, but God's going to use what the enemy means to destroy you this difficulty, and he's going to use it to make you stronger. 
He's going to use it to make you lovelier. He's going to use it to make you look more like his son Jesus all the while for your good and for his glory. It's what it says here, for his glory and for his honor and for his praise. Isn't that amazing? Can I be honest with you? I hate difficulty. I do. I'm looking for one of those diet plans where I can sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and have a beach bod. And they're getting closer to them. They, I heard they got more drugs out that like help. You can, you can take these pills and you can just still eat the Cheetos. But somehow, you know, six months of taking this pill and you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're ready for the beach. I'm not on that pill yet, evidently, you can tell. I hate difficulty. I want all of my life to be up and to the right. I want to get better every day. I want our staff to get better every day. I want our church to get better every day. I want life up and to the right. I want the money that I invest in the stock market always to go up and to the right. That's what I want it to do. It does not do that. I was praying even this week. I just had one of those weeks. You ever, you ever been in the, the funk for a day and you're just disappointed with everything in your life? You're just disappointed. You're disappointed in the world. You're disappointed in the politicians. Maybe we've all been there for a little bit. You're disappointed in the people who are making decisions. You're disappointed in, in, in yourself. You're disappointed in God. And in my study this week, I was reading John 15 again, no surprise to you, and then 2 Corinthians 6. And God just shared with me, Luke, the problem with you right now is, is you, are, you are seeking fruitfulness when all I've asked from you is faithfulness. Fruitfulness I can't even control. As a matter of fact, God prunes the branches that are bearing fruit in my life so that they bear more fruit. The goal cannot be fruitfulness. The goal, friends, has got to be faithfulness. This is what Peter's telling them. You've got you to press on for faithfulness and let God bring the fruitfulness. Just be patient, Luke. I'm at work. I'm using these things to strengthen you. Isn't this good news? That God takes the worst things that we will ever walk through and he uses them to strengthen us. Friends, if you're in the midst of one of those seasons, can I just encourage you, just be faithful. God's going to do more through the pain than you could have ever seen in a life of pleasure. God's molding you into the image of Jesus for his praise and his honor and his glory, and you're good. Fourth thing, quickly. Strengthening faith, eternal inheritance, new life, and then access to joy. Man, I love this. This kind of faith, this strengthened faith, leads to inexpressible joy. He's already said this in verse 6. In this you rejoice as you walk through trials. But then he says it again in verse 8. Though you've not seen him, Jesus... You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Again, rejoice. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What a phrase. Joy inexpressible and, and full of glory. This kind of faith leads to this inexpressible joy. The word translated here, joy inexpressible, occurs only here. 
Peter puts a couple words together to say this, this joy is going to be so incredible that you're not going to have words to express it. A joy so profound as beyond the power of human words. This is no ordinary joy. This is not getting money back on your taxes. This is an inexpressible joy. It's an eternal joy. It's a permanent joy that we can rejoice in the midst of difficulty. Because our joy is not ordinary or earth-born. No, we rejoice. We can have joy because our joy is based on the promises of a steadfast, promise-keeping God and not on my fickle feelings. We can have joy every step of the journey. I told you I was reading 2 Corinthians 6. Great read if you want to go read it. Paul's talking about how difficult life has been. This is what he says in 6. I don't have this on the screen. In verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He puts them two together. He's not saying that life's not sorrowful sometimes. He's saying in the midst of sorrow, we can have this confident soul happiness in God, no matter what we're walking through. Listen, Peter's not just saying, hey, you know, I know life is hard, but just chin up, buddy. Just endure it another 40, 50, 60 years, and then you'll die, and then you'll go to heaven, and then the real party starts. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he just reminding us of how bad Jesus had it. He's not saying, oh, you think your life's tough. Jesus was homeless, and he was the son of God. Oh, you think that's painful. Jesus was beaten, you know, with 40 lashes and hung on a cruel cross. Peter's not doing that. Peter's saying, no, we can have peace and a living hope and joy inexpressible in the midst of all of this. As a matter of fact, if you go down to verse 12, we didn't read this. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, this is talking about the prophets from before, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What a phrase there. That the, this is not in the Bible either, but I just imagine the angels like just peering over the top rung of a set of bleachers, looking over behind it, just confused as to what's going on. See, the angels have known God from the beginning. They've seen all his power and his might. They're singing all the songs. They've seen him, and they believe. Many of us in this room, all of us, we've not seen Jesus face to face, and yet many of you believe. And this is a mystery to the angels, just this idea of faith. Our living hope, this is what I want you to see, comes through a person. Notice how Peter ties all of this hope to the resurrection. Back to verse 3, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because we serve and worship a risen Savior, a living Savior, we have living hope, friends. I was at that funeral yesterday and written on the 
inside of the little brochure they hand you honoring uh, the man who had died. It was written, as is a lot of places, Psalms 23. You know Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I was reading that, and I kept thinking about, this is the Paul Miller quote of the day. It's not a quote, but I'll just try to sum it up. Paul Miller is the guy who wrote A Praying Life, and we've been talking about that book for eight weeks. There's this little section in there, and he's talking about walking through difficulty, Paul is, and he points to Psalms 23, that God goes ahead of us, that he walks beside us, and he comes behind us. And I've just been thinking about that for, for about a month now. And every time I go back to Psalms 23, even yesterday at this funeral, I'm sitting here and people are saying some words about this man I didn't know, but I knew his family. And I think in a sense, this helps explain what Peter is saying to us. In the beginning of the psalm, the shepherd is in front of us. It says in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. It says he, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me in verse 3 in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is what the good shepherd does. At the end of it, he's coming from behind us. It says there in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But in the middle, when we walk through the difficulty, the various trials of many kind, Peter says, in the next chapter, he's going to call them fiery trials. In the middle, the psalmist says, as I go through the valley of the shadow of, the de uh, of death, he is, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, if the rod and the staff are there, the shepherd's there. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The protective love of the shepherd gives me the courage to face the difficulty. And in these same ways, this is what Jesus does for us. This is what I think Peter's getting at. One, he leads. He went first. While we were still dead in our sins and transgressions, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He went, he went first. He, do what we, he did what we couldn't do. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was outcast so that we could be brought in. This is, this is the Jesus that we follow. He leads us. He goes before us. He took the venom out of the sting of sin. He took the permanence out of death. He leads us, and he can lead you through difficulty. Friends, because he understands, he literally can lead you through it. If you're at the very end of your rope and you've got no hope, hold on to Jesus. He can lead you through it. He goes before us. But more than that, he's always with us. You can talk to Jesus about your suffering. Isaiah 53 said that he's a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, and acquainted with grief. He understands. So it's not like you 
describing to a wealthy man what it's like to be hungry. No, Jesus walked the earth and was betrayed. And he walked through difficulty and he saw his friends die. He understands. So you can come to him as one who sympathizes and even empathizes as you walk through difficulty. And then thirdly, he comes behind us. Those areas that we don't get and we don't see, he does. We talked a few weeks ago about the spirits interceding for us in, in ways and praying for things that we know nothing about, but, but it's more than that. Jesus comes behind us and he's proving a way, he is solving the problem, he is sending the answer to the problem, the solution to the problem that we have, he's, he's sending that sometimes before we even ask for it. He comes behind. You, you, you might know this about me. I'm, I'm a little bit forgetful sometimes. And I forget to text people back, and I forget to email people, and I forget where my car keys are. It's just one of the things. And Ashley says, why don't you just hang your car keys in the same place every time you come inside? Because I forget to do that. I forget every time I come inside. That's why I don't do it. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten somewhere and forgotten something. And I'm like, oh, Dang, where's my Bible? Or I forgot my wallet. You see my backpack. And Ashley has this supernatural strength to have it. Literally, when I say, oh, I forgot my Bible, she just like pulls it out of this big purse and is like, this Bible that you forgot? Oh, I forgot my wallet. Oh, this wallet? Ah, don't have a water. Oh, you mean this water? I, don't, I literally don't know how she does it or how she keeps all those things in her purse. I do not know that. That's a silly illustration to, to describe this incredible gift we have in Jesus. That he thinks about the things that we're not thinking about. Isn't that, isn't that great of him? When we slip, he catches us. When we sink, he pulls us up. He leads us, he's with us, and he comes behind us. The psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me for all the days of my life. I'm going to invite the band up and I want to pray. I want to prepare our hearts for communion. But I want you just to take a few minutes, just right where you're at, and just talk to God. Maybe you're disappointed in God that he didn't show up when you thought he would, that he didn't answer the prayer as quickly as you had hoped, that he hasn't accomplished deliverance as he promised he would. Maybe you're just disappointed. And Peter would encourage you, friend, just take that disappointment to him. Take that grief to him. Take that suffering to him. Take it to him. Some in this room, you may not even know who Jesus is. You've been grown up in the religious environment, but you don't know this personal Jesus that Peter talks about. You have no idea what it means to have this living hope. Friends, I encourage you to meet him today. There's nothing necessarily you have to do. Just step across the line of faith. Just put your faith and trust in Jesus, repenting of your sin and trusting him for salvation. That's what scripture says it is. You can make him Lord of your life even now. Maybe during communion, you need to remember how he goes before us how he paid for our sin through his death on a cross on our behalf. Maybe you need to 
reminisce about how he's been with you every step of the way, that he's never left you. He knows the pain and the frustration and the grief, and you can lean on him, and that he comes behind, that he's already made a way. He's promised us that he'll take every blow that the enemy means to destroy us, and he'll use it for his glory and your good. God, it's, if we're honest, it's, sometimes it's hard to hope in the midst of difficulty, especially in one of those seasons where it's just one thing after another. And we know you promise us abundant life and peace that surpasses understanding. And here, even in this passage, joy inexpressible and full of glory. We know those in our head, but sometimes we just don't, we don't feel them in our hearts. We don't trust them when the night gets dark. We don't hope in them in the midst of the pain. So Lord, would you make your truth so real to us through the person of Jesus? As your family in here, as we share a common meal in a minute and we take the bread and we take the juice, would you remind us of this living hope because of your resurrection from the dead. The dawn really is coming. That there is a day that's not too far away. There will be no tears and no pain and no loneliness and no anxiety and no death. And until that day comes, Jesus, you're our living hope. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen. We'll have some members of the prayer team in the back. I'll be back there if you'd like to pray with someone. You can write your prayer on the card. If you're walking through a heavy time, I really encourage you to write that on a card. Let your church family pray with you. Me and some of the leaders will gather tomorrow and we'll pray for these. Maybe you want to trust Jesus today. It'd be a great day to do it. I'd love to talk to you about that. Whatever God lays on your heart, you follow him. The altar's open up here if you want to pray. Again, the prayer team's in back. You want to pray with them. And when you're ready, communion's given. In Jesus' name. Come when you're ready.